Welcome to the Athlete Diaries. I'm your host, Guy Walker. On this podcast, I take you through the journeys and challenges of professional athletes, from resilience to mental health and life away from sport. The world's angriest dad joins us today, a man that has brought so much joy to the world by getting tormented by his two sons. When I was looking through all the Angry Dad footage on Facebook for the teaser for the show, I was in stitches again watching the videos. It's just one of those things that it doesn't matter how many times you watch it, the content never gets old. I heard about Angry Dad videos when I was back in school and everyone loved him, but it wasn't until long ago that I actually found out about the man himself, Mark Orville. I started hearing that Mark was a seriously talented footballer that played for Collingwood. Then watching his documentary really showed me the man he actually is. A very good man that had a difficult end to his AFL career. Mark was a seriously talented footballer that Peter Dacos still names the pick of the bunch out of Collingwood's talented young brigade at the time. His life story is amazing. Battling the grief of losing his career, being misunderstood, dealing with mental health issues to becoming the angry dad and now doing incredible work in the mental health space. This was the first episode and first person I've spoken to that had a similar ending to their sporting career that I had, which brought up some pretty raw emotions for me. So I'm sorry if you have to listen to my voice slightly more than often, that's not good for anyone. Truly an incredible man, Mark is doing some amazing things. This is the truth behind Angry Dad. Mark Orville, uh, welcome to the Athlete Diaries, mate. It's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, Thanks for having me, appreciate it. Uh, I've sent you a couple of questions over. I've started doing these um, with a, a couple of the last um, guests, mate. So it'd be interesting to see some of your answers on these. So yeah, you're ready for a little bit of rapid fire? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Uh, the first one is, I've had a, a varied response so far, mate. Is, is what something that you wish you sort of knew um, at the start of your career? Oh, look, if I look back, there'd be one sort of standout thing, and that would be to trust your body, right, and not accept no for an answer. Um, ultimately, it was... Um, others not trusting my feedback from what my body was telling me that resulted in a premature career ending. Uh, it's as simple as that, right? So, you know, as an immature kid, 17, I'll come here at 16, but at 17 when it all started um, and things just didn't feel right, uh, it was telling me something and I shared that with um, the experts but trusted them when I should have trusted myself and questioned but you learn that with um the value of hindsight and maturity but that would be the the standout for me guy to be honest yeah no it's a good answer mate it's hard isn't it because when you're that age as well like it's hard isn't it because you're still learning learning yourself you're learning sort of your body you're learning about life and you're trying to tell people they're a lot older that think they know better but at the end of the day you know your own body better than anyone else don't you Absolutely. And I'd never had an injury. And again, at 16, typically, you know, you don't have many injuries because your body's pretty resilient. You know, you can bounce up from anything. So I just knew what I was feeling and and, and going through wasn't right. Um, and, you know, I guess without getting into detail, it was supposedly all, you know, ligament and, and tendon issues when pretty much played with a broken foot for two years. So there's the distinct differences. Yeah, incredible. When I when I was looking at your um, documentary and, and sort of, I know a couple of boys um, at, at, even at Melbourne last year. I think uh, Billy Stretch had a stretch fracture and it was very um, early stages, and he was walking around in a boot for most of the season. And you had a had a fully pretty much broken stretch fracture in yeah. your foot playing on it. So I know. <laughs> yeah, it's, like, it's actually, yeah, go on. I, 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 oh, look. In terms of the recovery, even from. Um, training from day to day it was actually looking back on it I I can't believe actually how I did it because I couldn't walk 
I, I, you just, I actually couldn't walk, but I would then get myself up to the next day to train and sort of I would rub deep heat into my foot, right, and I would have the old boot strapping, the, the plaster-like one. So my foot was burning, and that was what actually helped me get through it. But then the minute training had stopped and I'd yep. cut it off, again, I couldn't walk. Yep. Gets gets cold and it's done. Then, did, what did you get? That's did you right. get? Did you literally just have to keep cortisone jabbing it all the time just to get through? Constant. Oh, they're not much fun either. They Constant. are, are they? That was to train and to play jab. So, 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 like again with the value of hindsight, looking back, that's not normal. That's yeah. not right. Yeah. So, but you know, you live and learn, I suppose. Yeah. You live and learn. Yeah. No, mate. It, it, I know it, it's terrible, isn't it? But. I'll move on to the next question. Who, who was um, the most influential people during your career? And then also probably after your career, you've had um, an amazing sort of last um, since since football. Is, is who's sort of been that, that influential person for you? Oh, from a footy perspective, again, arrive at 16 as a prepubescent skinny little runt, right, to the biggest <laughs> sporting club in Australia. It was by far um, Peter Dacos, right? Yep. He was a superstar then already at that point. So he really didn't have to give us the time of day. If he was if he was like Mike Richardson, um, Bruce Abernathy, Jeff Range, Greg Phillips, and I'm happy to call those names out because it's fact, yep. they, wouldn't, they wouldn't talk to you, mate. They'd look at you like you were a piece of shit. Whereas Dakes was above and beyond all of those guys and he just took myself, McGuan, Trusiska under his wing, right? And as far as the guidance and the assistance and all that, he was just a simple guy. And he was amazing for all of us, absolutely amazing, just a, just a, incre- incredible. And I, I used to find it really difficult when I went home and people would say, oh, what's it like? You know, who have you made friends with? And what, you know, what are they like? You, you just, you're always feeling like you're a name dropper because Dakes was at the forefront of every conversation because yeah. we spent so much time with him and he was so amazing um, to us, etc. That people would look at you and say, you know, you're a wanky, you're just name dropping, whatever. But it's fact. It was actually, he was, he was just a superstar to us young kids. Incredible. Oh, that's awesome! That that I know exactly what you're talking about there, mate. As well, in the fact that it, it it's almost not the blokes' um, fault that the ones that are the ones that aren't really giving you much, is it? Because it's just the way that the culture probably was back then, and the culture they grew up in. It's almost like earn your respect, get older, play in the ones, and then we'll finally talk to you. Which is it's a horrible way, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And look, I single them out and they weren't the only ones. And I'm and, and I'm not saying from a footy club perspective, Collingwood was the only footy club where that sort of whole sort of outlook and attitude and culture existed, et cetera. Yeah. Clearly, you know, they moved on. Um, well, they would have finished at the end of 86, the majority of those. So I was sort of cutting my teeth with the, 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 the broader senior group then, so didn't have a lot to do. Then they moved on, but once you're sort of in that senior group, yeah, there's there's it's different. Yeah. But then there's still the ones that do talk and the ones that don't. But that's that's you know again that's just life in general. So I didn't lose too much sleep about that. But Dakes was an absolute standout. Yeah, it's awesome. I bet you. I bet you would have got a couple of these uh, during during your career and then since as well. Is what's probably the best or the funniest compliment that you've uh, you've received. Oh, well, yeah, look, you know, I probably have more compliments um, in the last four or five years purely <laughs> through this whole you yeah. know, crazy shit the boys put me through, right? Because, um, 
What's, what's been the, the standout with that is at the end of the day, society is in desperate need of laughter. And unfortunately, yeah. at my expense, lots and lots of people have had <laughs> lots and lots of laughter. But happy to suck that up. You know, these people have been in deep, dark places. And without that laughter, who knows? So, you know, that actually got them through and, and allowed them to, to get on with life and be happy and humble again. So that's the, from a footy perspective. Yeah. Um, and it's cold comfort and it doesn't really mean much. But, you know, one thing that will stick with me till the day I die is, you know, being having, you know, Gabby Allen on record saying that if, um, you know, Orbs was fit in 1990, and I was still there but just not playing, but he said if Orbs was fit, he would have played in the premiership side. Again, cold comfort because it didn't happen and it's a hypothetical and it's one person's opinion. But for me, I'll always look, on, look back on that as a validation of, you know, capability and skill, and that wasn't what actually held me back. It was unfortunately just purely that your body just couldn't cope, and it, you know, it's one of those examples. So they're probably the um, – there's a couple of examples. Yeah. Did you find – for me personally, I, I to not sure if, you, if you've seen what happened to me, but I, I, I had to retire end of last year from professional cricket and footy through – um, something similar, mate. I forty. I got forty percent of a shoulder left, just a freak accident. And I found that after my career, I'd I'd sort of speak to some of my mates. Some of them are playing for Australia now. Some of them playing AFL. And if I ever got a compliment, I got a couple from them to say that they never said this during my career, but they said that oh, if you were fit, you you, you probably could have played for Australia. But um, I almost found that really really bad. I almost went home and just felt sad all day because. It was almost I'm still going through that grieving period and I don't want to hear things like that. How did you feel when you got compliments oh, like that? Look, look, because it's so raw with you, right? Yeah. I understand exactly why you're feeling like that because back in the day with me, yeah, I had a grudge against the whole world and wanted to bash everyone. It was as yeah. simple as that and I couldn't accept anything. It didn't matter what sort of um, comment, you know, um, Anything that was said, it 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 it, it meant nothing to me because everything had been taken away. So I absolutely get that now. You know, this is I'm nearly thirty years on since I left the club, right? So now I actually have a totally different outlook as far as that's concerned. So so um, believe me, your your whole outlook and that will change as far yeah. as that's concerned. My my phone actually rang about oh, it's probably three months ago now, it might be four months ago. I'm like, oh, yeah, four, you know, recently, four months ago or something. And um, I listened to, they're having Peter Dacos on, I don't even know what channel, I think it was SEN, I'm not sure, whatever. Anyway, they talked to him. It was, it was he'd made his debut 30 years or 40 years ago. And so it was on this day 40 years ago, whatever it was. Yeah. And then they went into the whole discussion about the club and the different periods that he was involved, et cetera. And, and again, this, this to me is, is, you know, says why I think so highly of the guy. He actually gave me a rap still like three or four months ago saying that, you know, in 87 when Matthews come in or 86 when he come in, but he started sort of building, um, you know, who he recruited and who he was bringing through the 19s and, you know, singled me out and said that um, I was the pick of the litter out of the McGuans, Browns, Monkers, Krasiskas, et cetera. So don't worry, I've kept that tape and I play it to myself every day. <laughs> it's on your phone, mate. That's your alarm when you <laughs> <Yeah>. wake up. <laughs> yeah. But, but Someone it, goes, who are you? I just bring out my phone and I say, hey, have a listen to this. <laughs> but in all seriousness, like – I think I think that's why I really I was really really looking forward to sharing your story um, on this podcast, mate. Is because 
even through your documentary, like you look at some of some of your games, and you kept like you kept Brian Taylor out out of the side. You um you were like slotting them from fifty out, and you were clearing the goals by a long way. Like you're known as like the funny the funny guy that played a bit of footy, but you were a serious serious footballer. Is that does that ever annoy you or or, or get on your back a little bit? Because you're like, geez, people know me because I'm this funny guy, but I was actually a really really talented kid. Because you're being kind there. People know me now for being a fat, grey-haired bloke that swears no, to the kids. Not so at you, all, yeah, mate. You gotta, you can, <laughs> I look, again, um, now yep. when I look back, I'm actually chuffed to think that someone who only played seven games, right, is still actually remembered by the football public from back then, right? And, yes, it's Collingwood, right? So Collingwood people tend to have a greater impact on the whole footy world, so therefore they stay entrenched in people's minds longer. But, um, yeah, look, hey, I, I, um, I was happy with um, myself in terms of being able to play and, and, and cut it at that level, etc. And, you know, again, I just say to myself it, was, um, it wasn't, skill or, or the ability to play the game that sort of brought it all to an end it was just it, it was it was just injury i i had no issue with um competing at that level i yeah. i loved the game i just absolutely loved it and i i feel i was okay at it but it's one yeah, of those things modest, it's, it's just one of, it is, it's just one of those things yeah man like one thing i really really respect about you is your You've got a massive audience now. People absolutely love you, but you just seem like this is the first time I've actually met you. But you just seem like you're someone that always wants to give back and help people out. Because I can even think about it now. I, it would have been five years ago, probably longer. Like when Peter Siddle was still in the Victorian team, and and I was always in the change room with him. And I remember I don't know how much golf you played with him, but you played a bit of golf with him, and he'd always come back and he'd always tell the boys like, "Yeah, played played golf with Angry Dad today, and he's an absolute legend." And even then, like you always came across as a really nice guy. Is that sort of the values that you hold now of of, of that? Yeah, look, you know, country boy. I think, in, and I look at that in terms of with me, with me, what you see is what you get. And funny yeah. should mention, Sid, he rang me last night. I had an hour long chat with him last night. Yeah, yeah. He was over in Tassie, just preparing for you know what's yeah. coming. They're heading across to the hubs and all this sort of stuff. But love, love the guy, superstar, absolute amazing fella, and I get on really, really well with him. But you know. One of the things I, I've tried to live my life by and, and instill in my kids is at the end of the day, everyone's equal, right? And you actually treat people the way you would like them to treat you. Look them in the eye, shake their hand, call them by their first name. And unless they give you a reason to not do that, everyone earns the right to be treated like that, right? I don't have to try too hard to be like that. But at the same time, you know, there's people, there's been people, close friends and the like, um, that have crossed me and I can wipe them in one second yep. purely based on um, that's just not how I operate. It's, and it doesn't mean I'm always right, yep. but at the end of the day, that's how I am. And I, I, I can move on really quickly. I can move on. Yeah, that's awesome, mate. I think that's, that's, a, that's a really good – you've summed that up really well. I'll go on to – I've got a couple more questions for you. This one, um, very serious, uh, of uh, other than um, – in one of your videos, other than KFC, what is your favourite uh, restaurant and meal? 
Oh, gee, I'm sort of really partial to a nice ribeye steak and mashed yeah. potato, to be honest, yeah. or um, or even nachos. I've actually uh, I've cooked some nachos, um, yeah, re- like in the last few weeks while I'm sort of here uh, here on my own. So um, yeah. either of those two, but yeah, gee, when I'm when I'm scrolling through DoorDash or Uber oh. Eats or whatever, Jesus, the old um, the old KFC, it gets me too often. It, it's mate. Don't don't worry. It, it gets us as well. You, you mentioned a zinger box to my mates, and their ears prick up as soon as you. It doesn't matter how <laughs> dusty they are. <laughs> um, yeah. My last question, mate, for you is if uh, I think this is probably what a lot of people want to want to know is that if you could get in a boxing ring with one of your boys and absolutely belt the living hell out of them, which one would it be? I'll probably Mitchell. Yeah. I, firstly, he's tried boxing and he was shit at it. and He got smashed. So yeah. there's a weakness there. So I feel I've got an advantage. Um, Dylan's tall. Well, he's Dylan's as big as me, right? And probably yep. a longer reach. And I know he's powerful. Um, probably doesn't have the same stamina or fitness level as Mitch. But yep. I'd rather get hit by Mitch than Dylan. Just I, I, you know, I know my kids pretty well, and I should have bashed both of them years ago, anyway. <laughs> but um, it'd, it'd, it'd be Mitch, I reckon. Yeah, yeah, good answer. I, I, I saw that one coming. Um, mate, we'll go. It'd be good to to sort of now. I've seen your doco and read a lot about you. I've I've sort of understood a little bit about your your early life. But can you sort of give the listeners a little bit of a um, a bit of a recap on on sort of the early upbringing and and the way that you got to got to Collingwood? Yeah, born in Hamilton, Western District. So, yep. um, mum and dad, you know, just worked hard. Lived in a commission house. Um, we never went without. Um, Dad actually was actually Dutch, so he migrated from Holland in yeah. the early 50s. Um, of, he had nine um, brothers and sisters, and my mum was of a family of 13. Wow. So massive families, but typical country, you know yeah. what I mean? Like big families, they, they, they follow that sort of book of life, which is about, you know, get married, have kids, work hard, try and buy a house, and, yep. you know, and then just the cycle repeats itself. But, you know, I, I sort of got a hint early about 15-ish that there's a chance to come down here. And at 16, I packed my bag after I managed to um, bluff my way into telecom as a um, apprentice technician because mum wasn't going to let me go unless I had a, uh, you know, a, a job. job that would actually stack up in, in case the footy doesn't work, et cetera. <laughs> so I didn't know the first thing about diodes and capacitors and yeah. all that sort of stuff, but... I found a way to bluff myself through the interview, got the job and pretty much packed up within a week or so and and headed down here. It missed the country. I absolutely missed the country purely yep. because of the fact that, you know, you don't know any different at that point. You know, I'd only ever been to Melbourne, the big smoke, once before I'd actually shifted down here and that was on a school wow. excursion in about Form, form 4 or Form 5. Yep. So. It was daunting. It was a massive eye-opener and it was scary. It was actually really, really scary. So any chance I got, I would go home and that would be even if I finished a game on a a Saturday catching a late bus or train home and spend the night there, even though you wouldn't get home till 9, 10 o'clock, the the following day and then try and get a ride back with someone late on the Sunday. And this is a a three-and-a-half, four-hour trip, so you, you, you basically would only just you know, hit the ground in Hamilton and you'd be no, no sooner turning around and coming back. But that was just, just how I was. Yeah, that's, it, it, it is, isn't it? It's such a different lifestyle, that country lifestyle. And then I can imagine that when you moved out at 16, like 
it must have really it must have been really difficult at the time but also made you um learn learn life i guess even just things of of living by yourself and having to to be on a schedule with collingwood and what was that like what was that sort of cuz i imagine cried that, every day oh mate i could imagine cuz cried I, every day and i lived in mcleod um, yep. out near greensboro I, I boarded with a guy called greg fall yep. and uh, mickey mcguan mickey mcguan shifted in about probably about eight months, six, eight months after I'd been there. So there's maybe even a fraction longer, but there's initially myself, Greg Fall, and a guy called Brett Glary, actually. So, um, but we, look, we, we, it was just every morning I'd wake up because I'd have to walk to the train station, train into the city, train out and then walk to work. And I would just cry thinking, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? I just If I was in Hamilton and I was working, I wouldn't have to get up till 7.30 and I could go straight to work. And But, you know, uh, it was one of those things, it's about just sucking it up in some respects. This is what I'd tell myself, this is what you wanted. So at the end of the day, there's sacrifices. And once you get your licence, things will become easier. Yep. And I was always sort of trying, I suppose, to give myself some achievable milestones that were, you know, within reach and getting my licence and becoming independent was clearly one of those because everything became a hell of a lot easier. And admittedly by then, you know, I suppose I'd accepted what was required to, to, to make this work anyway. But, gee, the first, the first six months was, was just ex- extremely difficult as a young kid to deal with. Yeah, bloody hell, like waking up that early because people forget as well, like even me, like, geez, you guys had to work. So you were trying to, yeah. you had to move, move from the country where you'd never moved from back into Melbourne, into the the sort of the the city and then work, train with senior players and try to get a senior game. Like that is the resilience that you would have actually been able to to build and, and sort of, it would have built your characters so much. What was that? Did you ever come out of that? What did you actually like the job you were doing as well? Because that would have made a lot. No, of hated it. Yeah, hated it. Bloody and you hell. know, I, I walked out of Telstra on the eve of me turning eighteen because they wouldn't give me the day off to go home to get my license, right? Yeah. And my car was in Hamilton, so I just wanted to go home and get it. And you know, typical, you know, um, business back in those days, they didn't give a shit about country kids. Yeah. You're here as an apprentice, and these are. I could have taken a sickie right yeah and nothing ever not, nothing would have ever come of it but again try and do the right thing i actually asked for the day off right and yeah. we get we're entitled to leave and all this sort of stuff but it needs to be approved so that worked to my detriment they said no and i said well i have to i'm going my license uh, i've booked in for it they said well you can't so i i resigned i said well shove it up your shove it up your ass i'm going anyway and then like again so so being honest it cost me and I didn't care. Yeah. I didn't look back. And then what, what was it like when you, when you got that call? Who called you to say, Mark, you're in, you're in the ones this week, mate. And then the, all that work that you've done, all that sacrifice that you've given up to move, to, to learn life, build your um, character, and you're in the ones at Collingwood. Matthew's, what was that like? Matthew's told me. Um, and it was to debut, debut oh, against Hawthorne. So, um, you know, it was yeah. just like, it was just incredible. Like, again, you look back at and it was just it's just an incredible moment. And I remember, I remember my parents actually told me they weren't coming, right? And we trained, we had, it's the modern day captain's run, but we had a, yeah. a light session on the Friday night at Vic Park. And I remember um, I was actually running um, and Cloakie said to me, how are you feeling? And I said, nervous as shit. He said, because knowing country, he goes, are your parents coming down? 
And they told me no, like what a sucker I am. I just yeah. went, oh, okay, no. And I said, no, nah, they're not coming. doesn't matter. doesn't Scotch we caught him then. It doesn't matter, Scotch. There'll be another 250 times they can come and watch anyway and I'm just <laughs> sort of up and all this shit. But, of course, when I got to the ground, um, they were there. I, yeah. And I, oh, that's how dumb I am. I didn't even for a minute think that they were coming. When they said no, I just assumed they weren't coming. But they were there and, and happened to enjoy the the time with me. Oh, look, probably at, I think I had eight touches or something. Gave away, um, could have had first kick, first goal. Yep. But Paul Morwood, I took a mark and Paul Morwood come sniffing past me for that sneaky little handball and I gave it to him. That's right. Well, respecting your peers, I suppose. Like he played a shitload of footy and I'm thinking. And you got to give it, don't you? <laughs> Young fella, you got to give it, don't you? Or they'll kill you. Oh, mate, it's awesome. Like, run me through like when you when you first started to feel the foot. So you played, you played quite a few, like a few games in that in that year, and you started doing doing well. You kept Ryan Taylor at the team, and then you started getting a little bit of that um, foot. Start, yeah, started in '86. I went there in '85. Yeah, sort of played 19s, and I started feeling it in '86, and it sort of just gradually got worse. And I actually missed a couple of games in 86 um, for I did an AC joint. Um, so I missed a few games yeah. with that, which allowed me, uh, looking back on it now, you know, because clearly the running and the jarring and all that of the shoulder, you know, I had a few weeks that I'd sort of didn't train and run and that. And I think that was just helped the foot a little bit, but then you'd get back and whatever. But yep. pretty much the whole of 80, well, three quarters of 86 and then the, the whole of 87, um, I, I just had, I was managing it basically. And it was after that um, last game in 87 where it was just a question, uh, something is not right. We need to look at this. I'm, I don't care what you say. But, and sure enough, you know, bone scan, X-ray, and all that hadn't detected the navicular stretch fracture, but but exactly. No, right. So that did, and and I'll never ever forget. I won't forget the look. You know, the whole doctor holding up the 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 X-ray. Ah, oh, shit. Yeah. You, you pretending you you pretending what you know what you're looking at as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I and I, I can again close my eyes and picture. It. I, I wanted to just jump the desk and and just choke him. Yep. To be honest, it was that whole ah oh, shit. You know what? You've actually got a bloody navicular stress fracture here, and and I'll, you know, I, I can remember it as clear as day. And it, it, those sort of things, you know, when you relive them, frustrate you because you know you get off those stress fractures in for six weeks, and, and yep. nine times out of ten, they're right. But that sort of put me back then. So I had the operation eighty-seven. End of 87, went to Queensland in the December with um, Chris Iska, Matty Ryan um, and Greg Fall, I think it was, just just relaxed. No, the, they didn't plaster it back then. It was sort of, which was really weird in itself too. Um, it was like just a really heavy bandage and all that sort of stuff. But got the all clear to start to do some um, mobility stuff while I was up there. Um, and, of course, like soft surface Sand seemed the, the appropriate thing to do. and But as soon as I put my foot down on the sand, it was like this sh- really sharp pain in my arch, worse than the pain of, you know, um, the, the fracture itself. So I had to jump on a plane and come back, and lo and behold, um, they put the screw in too far. So they had to pull the screw out and start again. Now, 
I don't know if you know no, Navicula, but Navicula yeah. is about yay big, right? The screw is this big. So yeah, you picture no. doing that to a piece of wood, pulling it out, and you've got to put another one in. They put two in, actually. It, it was destined for disaster from the outset, and it just would never recover. So it went from one screw to two screws to um, bone off my hips three times to a battery-operated bone stimulator to in the end, I had to have my whole okay. foot that, fused. That, that's when it gets full on. Like you don't, it doesn't get fused unless it unless it needs to be repaired. Bottom line is, I had no choice because it was all shattered. So you 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 know, I still have limited um, foot um, like the, the ankle movement. But if you're talking about your foot, right? All those bones in your foot, because they'd all pretty much just shattered from the operations. It all had to be fused into one. So, like, again, it's mind-boggling when you look at it. I look at the screws, I look at the x-rays, and and I relived it all doing the doco. Yeah. And it was like, oh, Jesus Christ, it was never going to work when you look at this. It, it just couldn't. Did you did you ever look back at it? Because, like, obviously you would have been the same, but growing up as a, as a young kid or as a young athlete, you keep getting told you've got to learn what a good pain and a bad pain is. Did you always know that there is something, I've been playing footy for a long time, I know what a bad injury, I know what a bad feeling feels like and this isn't good. How long did you know that for? Right up till the end of 87. So for, that, for those first two years when nothing had been done about it, hadn't been detected, they, they got a psychologist into the club. And I'll never forget a big tall guy and I remember him sitting me down talking to me about just accepting the fact that, you know, um, your body will re- sort of re- recover differently from the, the intense workload coming from the country and never training to now stepping it up to this and all. And it, was, it wasn't bone, it was ligament and all this sort of stuff. So, you know, I'd, I'd sort of convinced myself that I was a softer shit too, but I knew deep down that I wasn't. Yeah. And, you know, that's why <clears throat> when it was like officially known, when it actually come out that it was, it was, it was always it was a reassurance for myself that I wasn't a sook. And at the end of the day, I knew, I just friggin' knew there was something wrong. Yeah. Yeah, you do, don't you? You get to a point where you just go, I know, I know what a I know what a good pain feels like, I know what soreness feels like, but I know that something's not right here. And then so what 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 happened then? So you finally got that MRI and then the, the doctor so goes. So it was yeah, it was straight in, had the op, the screw put in too far, pulled out. Two put in, then it's about recovery, rehabilitation. So it's gradual, right? And each yeah. time with each operation, I had nine operations. So with each operation, you know, the recovery was worse because the the condition of your foot was worse. Um, I consulted David Grant. I saw a guy called Peter Dobson in South Australia that fixed Glenis Nunn, the Olympic athlete who had stress fractures. I ended up back here with David Young. Um, he did – he. Yeah, he did the last one, um, David Young, and yeah. a good fella. I forget the guy that he consulted. I'll never forget this either. He in his rooms in the aven- in the avenue in Windsor, yeah. and he's looking over his glasses at me and looked at it and was going, "What the hell?" And he, he called in. I think I don't know if it was Peter Wilson. Now I, I, I'm not sure, but he called in another one of the orthopedic surgeons and just looked at that and said, "Man, have a look at this." And I'm not going to say what he said because I'm not going to open up old wounds after all this time, but. Yeah. Yeah, you know, he he I, I he said enough for me to um to later on attempt to um recall him and have him assist me with some you know things that I was looking at doing etc. But he decided not to. 
and yeah. if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, um, but the horse had bolted, and it didn't matter. It was going to be a long and drawn out process to try and to do anything anyway. Well, that's why but, you sign waivers now, don't they? They make you sign. Yeah, yeah it's. A, I still, I, I, for the life of me, um, and it's too late now for me. But I, I, it's more for others. At the end of the day, you're employed by a footy club, right? Yeah. And you actually earn money and you pay tax, right? You have all these mandatory requirements, and that is to have the highest health cover and blah, 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 right? Yet if you actually get seriously injured where you're actually permanently incapacitated and restricted and can't do this, that, and the other, why the standard employer-employee things don't apply? If I actually did that at any workplace, then there are systems and processes around you know, all of that that actually mean that you looked after. I, I had to borrow money. I'll never forget. I had to borrow money off my current boss to pay for my last operation when I left the club because um, there's out-of-pocket expenses clearly. And while I was there and listed, they cover those. But once you're gone, and I don't take this personally, that's just how the clubs are, um, once you're gone, all of that becomes your responsibility. And it was $1,100. Again, I'll never forget it. And his name is Jeff Birch. He's a multi-millionaire um, entrepreneur in Perth. I worked for him. He sent me a check because I was actually in tears with my boss here in uh, Monterey Road, Dandenong, at my old work. Again, I'll never forget it. And he he reached out to the boss, and you know, I don't know, a week later, two weeks later, I got a check for eleven hundred bucks from him paying for it. Because, mate, like I'm. It's funny, like when I watched everything about you, I can just see so many of the same things that I'm going through, and I, like. For me, it's been so much easier because there's so much support now. The, the footy club supports you. The AFLPA supports you. The, even even of, of even at Cricket Victoria and, and the, the Australian Cricketers Association, they've supported me with education and, and all sorts. But still, like I, I got off the phone a, a month ago to um, work, works, workers' comp. And as athletes... For, for someone like you, for someone like me, I've got I've got 40% of a shoulder for the dominant shoulder for the rest of my life. I'll never be able to play sport again. I've been told I won't ever be able to pick up my kids. Um, and I can't ever access workers' comp. Never. Doesn't, doesn't make sense, does it? It, it, it? doesn't make sense. I know. But people look I mean, at it. Yeah, go on. Uh, to your point, to your point, they actually, they are certainly better these days and they've come a long way. They've got a lot of work to do, though. I'm telling you now, they have got a lot, a lot of work to do. And this whole COVID thing's not going to help footy clubs in terms of that support and assistance that's deemed to be a must-have or a nice-to-have. And, again, they can all say what they like. Mental health is not a a must-have. It's a nice-to-have, right? And soft cap's going to put restrictions and limitations on all of these clubs. Mm-hmm. And people, I, I think the league, and and I'm not just going to bash the AFL here because I think it's true of all sporting um uh, organisations, etc. They're gonna. They'll have taken two steps forward. This whole thing will mean they take three steps back, because yep. financially the money won't be there. And I look. I talk to so many people, and I've been fortunate that even you know, p- people reach out to me, and these are people that are currently playing or, or have been flicked or whatever. And there is a huge bow wave that the AFL has no idea about. And they can employ all these um, execs around mental health and the like, and they can have a line item in their balance sheet that says they've got 20 million there for mental health. Well, that does nothing, right, because prevention is better than a cure, right? And it starts way, way earlier than the point when players get to the club or when the player is close to being exited or has 
exited. These kids need to be conditioned at 14, 15 as they're coming through the, the talent pools and those programs and the like around prepare yourself for disappointment, right? Because I can tell you if there's any advice from me to anyone out there in terms of all of this, it is learn to distinguish between disappointment and regret, right? Because I lived with regret for so many years and I talk about it and touch on it in the documentary, right? Mm. But when I look back, I have very little regret as, as in understanding the difference between the two. I got huge disappointment, but I've actually really got very little regret. And once you can actually bring yourself around to comprehend that and understand it and accept it, it makes it way easier to move on. It really does. And it took me a long, long, long time. And again, I talk about it in the documentary. If I didn't have medication for 15 odd years, I wouldn't be here, guy. It's as simple as that. And I don't say that to, to you know, be flippant around this whole mental health thing because I'm talking about this not as someone who has an opinion and is happy to talk to people. I'm talking about as a sufferer, as a sufferer for yeah. nearly 20 years. And my best friends didn't know. Mate, but my missus did. Yeah. And my mum did because they're the only two that I can fight in. And the shit Sharon put up with, I don't know why she's still here because it, it is a very, very hard thing to live with for the sufferer yep. and for those around. But, you know, that's where you need stability and people that are happy to support you and see you through because it can and it does get better. It yeah. actually can and it does. Mate, that's I massively, massively respect you for, for for the work you're doing around the mental health space and just being so open and honest. And and you've you've got that lived experience. And and like I said before, you you didn't have that support of of the AFLPA or the club when you left the game. So and then also back then as well, which didn't help was mental health wasn't very recognised. So you're probably going through and being completely just, misunderstood because I read it was the whole yeah. the whole stigma around it. Because I, I read as well after your career, after you finished, and, and you speak about it in the documentary, is that you used to get in fights and everything at pubs and stuff. But to me, that just seems like you were completely misunderstood. You didn't have the support around you, the stigma was there, and you just didn't know how to deal with it. Is that fair to say? 100%. And, you know, the worst thing for someone that's going through that sort of shit is alcohol, right? You turn to you turn to different vices and, you know, I love to party like everyone else and it was a way to sort of almost feel like you were still part of the, the, the footy environment because I continued to hang around with them for a bit after it, right, and then slowly moved into the whole family mode, et cetera. But, yeah, you would go out and, yeah, you, you, alcohol would be a really, really bad trigger. And, you know, again, I say in the documentary, if my kids did one-tenth of what I did, I would be so embarrassed yeah. and I would actually almost want to distance myself from them and say, I, I, you know what, put your shit together or I don't want to have anything to do with you. And, and I'm not proud of that, but you can't hide from it. And all of it has taught me around that whole thing about I, I accept now why I was like it. And funny, when I invited some of Sharon's and my close friends to the documentary, I put in the note to them that, that I was doing it and I'd love for them to attend the premiere and I said, which was a really important thing for me because it's a bit of an icebreaker, I said, what I hope at the end of it is that you now accept and understand my behaviours from many, many years ago not to not to condone what I did, but it might put into perspective 
how I behaved at different times back then because, again, they didn't know. I'd stuff up at some place, pub, party, whatever, bash someone or something had happened and then you'd walk into the, the group the next day with your, your tail between your legs, your head down, just hoping, just hoping that they would forgive you and you would, you know, get another chance. Well, I had 20 chances. And, you know, so many of them reached out to me um, straight away or called me or emailed me or spoke to me on the night and said, why didn't you tell us? Why did you never, ever tell us? We just thought you were, and this is serious, they said, we just thought you were a dead set cockhead when it comes to drinking. And I said, because, you know, I didn't want to talk to anyone about it. And initially you didn't even realise you had a problem, but, yeah, it was just, I just, it wasn't something you talk about. Yeah. wasn't but, something you talk but about. Like for me, if you look back at, at your life and your career, you've gone from, absolutely wanting to live that dream of an AFL player. You sacrificed so much as a 16-year-old. You had, you had a, a great start to your career and then you weren't, if we're going to be honest, you weren't looked after properly by the footy club. Um, you should have been rested and you, your career just finished like that and that's what happens. And then the way that you had to deal with that was by other things and that was alcohol and that just, mm. I, I think it's, it's quite unfair that people – and it's probably because of the the education around them, but I, I just find it really unfair that people turned around and just didn't go, why is this happening? Instead of yeah. going, oh, you're <laughs> a cockhead. Just they didn't because at the end of the day, nothing was known about it, right? You know, as far as there was, you know, mental health now that the sheets are being pulled back, right, there's so many different types, there's so many variabilities of it and it impacts people in so many different ways. Back then you are either sane or you're an absolute mental nutcase. There was no, there was no in between. And for a, a, a decent period after the footy, um, you know, I was just an absolute nutcase moron, like that behaved badly too often. And uh, again, I, I, I sort of don't sit here being proud of it, but at the end of the day, unless you know, that's all helped me with my understanding and recovery and the ability to actually use it in a positive way to actually educate and train people around what are the triggers, what you need to do, how to avoid it, and all of this sort of stuff because it's critical yeah. that people confront it and not, not actually tuck it under their, um, under their jumper and just forget about it. Yeah, like your, your honesty is, is incredible. And then look at the not only have you been so honest but in the documentary as well is that you've you've done so much and you've able to 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 come out of that side of your life and build an amazing family and and also give so much joy to other people through through what you're doing now and through what the boys did to you as well but even for myself mate like I watched your documentary the other night because um, I heard about it and I really wanted to get you on the show. And I just, for the first time since I retired, I've almost, I don't know about you, but I've almost had the fact that, oh, like, oh, I'm grateful for my career and I'm going to set, I've been re- working really hard to try to set up a, a life for myself. But for the first time, I actually sat down, I've, I've finished watching your documentary. My partner turned around to me and she said, Geez, you two have you two have lived a very similar life up to up to this age, and it was the first time I've cried in I could not tell you how long because I started grieving again. I started just thinking, yeah. mate, like some of my best mates are playing for Australia right now. A lot of them are playing yeah. AFL, and I'm here just trying to work towards life. I've got forty percent left of a shoulder, and mate, I, I stared at the ceiling all night, and I didn't know what to do. And none of my mates know that I'm that I'm going through. Sometimes I grieve. I'm happy, but I, I, there's days where I'm flat as anything and I grieve. Yeah. 
Look, I can absolutely sympathise with you and what I would say to you is it's normal, right? But the key is about... And, 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 you know, that whole emotional side of things, again, is normal. Um, that's how you, you need to express how you're feeling, et cetera. But I would, you know, I would certainly be watching it closely because at the end of the day, things can get out of hand, right? And it's about trying to find that balance. What are the triggers, et cetera? And, you know, and don't be too proud to go and talk to professionals, get help and, and get their advice in terms of where you're at in that whole spectrum yeah. because, Never leave it to a point where it's too late because life actually, it delivers us lots of knockout blows, right, but it builds character around being able to actually recover and move on and deal with it. It's about, you know, I I look back, there's an old saying of my father-in-law who I love to death and, you know, is probably one of the most influential people um, in terms of my life who was a... I could confide in him. He was a mentor. I played a lot of country footy, tough as shit, but not <laughs> intrusive, but just a good, good bloke. And he, he, he told me this saying that was one of his favourite sayings. And this is probably when I first met him when I was 19-ish, and it was, you complain because you had no shoes till you met a man with no feet. And you think about it, right? You always yep. think that you are the worst done by, the hardest done by, struggling and suffering the most, whatever. But you, you don't have to look too far to find that there's always someone worse off. What about that poor family's 14-year-old kid they found tragically dying? You know, there's all of that, all of that puts life into perspective. And I think it's, a, it's, it's something that's important as a constant reminder as you deal with your own shit yourself to just think about, again, it's a, what you've got, not what you don't have and yeah. how grateful and lucky you are. And... Shit happens and there'll be another chapter that you will rewrite and it'll take you through that next journey and it'll involve family, it'll involve kids and, okay, you might have put a cross through your professional sport but you've done a lot more than a lot of people and, you know, there's lots that would have loved to have had half the opportunity, a third of the opportunity and they sit there trying to work out why they never did. Yeah, no, mate, mate, makes a lot of sense. I think it's just that whole thing of you're right, like about – that's something that since my career has been finished, every single time I, I sort of speak about it, I just say, oh, I'm really grateful and almost take the piss out of it because I was always injured. Yep. So, and do you think that that's one of the reasons why it might've been a bit harder because the Aussie culture is you can't turn around and go, oh yeah, no, I was a really good player and, uh, and now my career is gone sort of thing. And you can't properly speak about it. Like, every single answer in every single interview that I do they they say oh what did you like what about your eight-year career or whatever and I, I always just say oh yeah what a joke of a career that was because I never played but I don't actually I don't <laughs> you actually sure you're not my it. brother you sure not my brother because at the end of the day my favorite catch grow when someone says to me like footy career like you, you actually did, you did well I go what seven games seven goals nine operations who would look back on a career and says having more operations than games that you've played is <laughs> is like a tick it gets embarrassing come on you know but yeah you gotta be you've got to be flippant and you've just yep. got to be a, a realist yep yeah definitely mate and, and that 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 um quote that you you said before as well it, it really does ring true to me i think with cricket you get to go a few places and i remember those in those indian kids that were pushing the sight screen all day just for a, a game against india and they came to the rooms after waiting outside the rooms and i remember giving them I had um, two gloves and I, I threw them out the window, but one of the gloves caught um, and it went into the mud or something or, was, or in the river or whatever. And I got back the next day and I said, I'm, I saw him. I'm like, mate, 
I'm really sorry about that glove. I, I need to give you another one. And I was like, oh, shattered for him. And he goes, no, sir, I don't have any gloves. I've got one glove now. And mm. you're like... Yeah, I know. Have just, you, do you know Hugh from the Resilience Project? I, I, I've, I've seen him before. A few of the boys have done quite a bit of work um, with him. Yeah. Amazing. Grat- gratitude, empathy, mindfulness. Three really sort of pretty obvious sort of words, phrases. Yeah. Um, like how he puts it into perspective uh, and that example of the kid, you know, that um, was happy with one glove is, is a classic example that he uses um, that, that brought about him delivering this whole program to people throughout Australia. And, and yeah. it, you know, it, it, it doesn't hurt people to have a bit of a reality check every now and then and try and actually get involved with yeah. that sort of stuff and, and understand it, that it get, what you've got, not what you don't have. Because what you've got today, that you're, you're thinking, shit, what, you know, is what you were begging to have three, four years ago. And you got it, but you still, you don't, yeah. you don't celebrate the achievement because it's never enough. And society's to blame for that because everyone's just almost too fixated on what others are doing, what others have got. Yeah. And they don't they don't actually just sit back and say, well, stiff shit, what everyone else has got, right? Are you happy in your own self? Then yeah. it doesn't really matter. Yeah, it's good that you say that because I remember watching Hugh speak one time and he talks about there's a certain word for it but I can't remember and it's about – and it's so true. It's, it's when we get that car, you're happy with it for half a year and then you go, oh, I want that next car. I want that. Yeah, I want that true. next house, and it's so true, isn't it? But people aren't happy. They yeah. go, "Oh, well, this is my house." And what what makes me sort of um, question it is is I'm curious around it is that like you see these millionaires, and I know a couple. I've got a business mentor that made millions and millions in IT, and he goes, "I was the most unhappy in my entire life when we sold that business, yep. and I had all that money." Yep. Yeah. It sounds crazy, it? doesn't it? But I've got no doubt that in a lot of cases that's fact. Like there's been people with a lot of money that have stayed happy, continued to stay happy, mm. but at the same time, the other end of the spectrum, mm. there's a lot of people with no money that are happier than the whole lot of us put together. Yeah. So, you know, it's what you actually want to make of it because we're all we're all responsible for our own destiny. We're all responsible for our own mindset and all that stuff. And there'll be foreign things come in and try and actually – shake it up a bit at different times, regardless of what it is, but ultimately it comes back to us, right? We're, we're in charge. We're in charge and, you know, if we don't want to do it for ourselves, then how do you expect others to want to help you and, and do it? Yeah, mate, you've, you've had so many amazing life experiences in sport, in life, and you've had some lows and you've had so many highs. Is this, this time of year, like this time in, in general anyway, how hard it is for people and people are struggling. What advice what advice are you being giving to people that are really, really struggling? Because I've had a few people reach out to the show saying, some some being my friend saying, no one knows but I am actually struggling. Is Are you finding yeah. people are coming to you for advice or, or are you trying to trying to? Oh, definitely. I mean, I would get... I would get anywhere from 20 to 50, 60 messages a day from people. Bloody hell. And 80% of those would be from people that are feeling flat and shit um, that have either watched a video or um, seen something and just wanted to reach out to say thank you. So that's where I feel absolutely privileged and, and humbled by the fact that the boys put me through a lot of shit, right? But if that's the legacy I leave, yep. that it brings a smile to someone's face who otherwise was in a deep, dark place, then I'm actually happy with that. And that was part of the reason, well, it was the driving reason for me to agree to do the documentary because I was talking to people for three or four years who would actually 
you know, um, confiding me with these messages. And I would go back and say, wow, that's not good, you know, be strong, be happy, tomorrow's another day, you know, just make sure you look after yourself, talk to people. But for me, I was almost telling a tiny bit of a lie because I was talking to these guys from an angry dad perspective, some fat guy that, you know, has helped them laugh. But I wanted to talk to them and be more sincere from a sufferer's perspective. It's just got way more cut through, right? So if I say one thing to someone and they don't know my background, what I've experienced and been through myself, it has less weight or carries less weight than if someone hears it from someone who's actually been there and, you know, sought professional help, relied on medication for 15 odd years and did the hard yards and tried to work in a job, bring up a family and do all that sort of shit when all I wanted to do was go home and lay on the couch down the back room and hide under a blanket. And I did that for so long that I wasted a, a, a really important part of my life. Yeah, but like you look at it now, and that's why I'm I'm so passionate about trying to share your story because you've got so many amazing life experiences to help people, and especially in the elite um, elite world, is that you you know it like um, you're in a bubble. You think your career is going to go till 35, don't you? And you just yeah, think, yeah. you just think this is going to go forever. But like you would have seen as well, and I've seen is that some of your mates they're in for two or three years. They think it's going to last forever, and then their career is done, and they struggle massively in transition. Like I don't know about you, but I was injured for so long. I was I was able to do some work experience and study, and my transition wasn't too hard, but it was still hard. Um, and some people. I finished footy and then went and did night school for three nights a week, you know, from 5.30, 6 o'clock through 9.30, 10 o'clock, three nights a week to get a marketing degree because I knew that I was not going to provide for the family through football yeah. and I needed to become competitive um, in terms of qualification. I only did Form 5, so I didn't yeah. even finish HSC. So I needed to actually invest in a qualification to allow me to get into the starting blocks for jobs and roles that I wanted to apply for um, because without those qualifications, you know, you would be dismissed. And I was fortunate Collingwood opened doors with me in different roles around, you know, um, life outside of footy. But without that commitment to the, the schooling and all that, then, um, you know, I reckon I would have got left behind even more. Um, one thing, mate, I've, I've wanted to, to touch on and I'm a bit curious about is, Obviously, the way Angry Dad started was uh, Mitch and Dylan absolutely terrorising you. Has that? How much has that gone from just a couple of funny jokes? And I saw Mitchell talk about how many likes it got over a certain amount of days or whatever. But has that? How much has that sort of changed your life, Mitch's life, Dylan's life, the family's life, or is it sort of oh. um, just sort of what, what? What's that whole sort of um, time of your life? Oh, been it was like? crazy to be honest. Like it, it did go just nuts, like yeah. out of nowhere. Um, it just it just yeah. blew up, right? Which to me, what it tells, again, with the value of hindsight looking back, what it told me was um, that how sad society was and, and how in need of some medicine um, around laughter that they actually were. Everyone could relate yeah. to it because everyone's dad gets annoyed with their kids when they do stupid shit, right? Whether it's <laughs> intentional or unintentional. So it was that whole relatability that caused the virality. There's no doubt about that. Um, how's yeah. it changed? Look, you know, I still can't get a free T-shirt, so nothing's changed for me, right? Um, it's, it's as simple <laughs> as that. Mitchell, Dylan, yeah. look, they, we all had some great experiences 
throughout the journey, you know, it's pretty much dead and gone now because they don't live here anymore and, um, you know, everyone's moved yep. on with their life again, which suits me fine because I can now sleep. I can <laughs> sleep at night. But it's created – it has created opportunity for them. I've got no doubt about that. Dylan's Good. not um, – as, as into social media as what Mitchell is, uh, Mitchell's yep. you know just gone from one level to the next uh, in terms of all of that. That's that's his life. That's that's um, pretty much you know he's very very fortunate as far as that's concerned. Yep. It's helped Hannah significant, significantly as well. Um, but yeah, Dylan Dylan yeah, to a lesser extent, um, and he just hustles and you know, runs the, the Poetic Justice Beverages brand for us because, yeah, good on him. Yeah, that, that's more him, you know. He's astute, he's, he's business-minded and you know, dabbles yep. in social media and does this, that and the other, but um, yeah, he's a little bit different to, to the other two. I think he's got that athlete mindset, doesn't he, of sort of goals, yeah. achievements, hard work. That well, he, he had the same issue too, don't forget, drafted by Crows, yeah. career cut down 12, 13 hamstrings in two years, etc. So, you know... Crazy, and it's just it? ridiculous, but at the same time, I've I've worked really, really closely with him and shared my experiences and helped him understand it, etc. So, you know, he accepts that it was just part of his life, and he he's got disappointment, um, no regret, and you know he's happy. He's a father. Um, you've got a beautiful little grandkid who I just love to death, and um, yeah, you know he's accepted it and move on. He you know, he'd love to have you know, be still playing like some of his mates are that he got drafted with, but, you know, new, new yeah. phase you know, and uh, new opportunity. Yeah, exactly. He's just moved on with his with his life earlier than he would have wanted to, but, geez, he's, he's doing some good work and he's it seems like he's absolutely loving what he's doing with the beverages. Yeah, no, he's terrific, right? And, again, I'm sort of trying to help him cut his teeth around that whole um, corporate world and, and yeah. how you actually um, roll within that space, having sort of... Pretty much, well, that's all I've done my whole life, you know. Um, yep. Had senior executive roles running um, businesses with, I don't know, six people up to 200 people. So, yep. um, yeah, there's an art to it and it requires certain disciplines and personality types, this, that and the other, and Dylan's got all that. Yeah. So I just whip him every now and then and make sure that he doesn't become too complacent and lazy because, you know, I'm a hustler. I've always worked really, really long hours and worked really, really hard my whole life. So yeah. um, sometimes it's about working smarter, not harder, but you still got to get the runs on the board first. Yeah, definitely. And what, what, what's been? What's it like being a granddad, mate? Has it, has it mellowed you out even more? Yeah, look, I just can't wait to fill them full of jelly beans and Fanta and then send yeah. them home so they don't sleep for three days. But <laughs> oh, look, I have, oh, look, I haven't I haven't got to see Mitchell's kid who yeah. and, and little artist is he's going to be six weeks on Sunday, so yeah. I, I haven't seen him yet, which is really really sad. But it, again, it, it is what it is. Is um, you know we're all contributing to getting through this in some way, shape, or form. But Bo, Bo, I FaceTime him. Dylan's a little fella. I FaceTime yeah. him probably three or four times a day and he runs over and kisses the phone or does whatever. And actually he's, he's, his favourite thing is when he sees me on the other end of the phone, he just stands there and laughs. So I'm not sure what that's saying, but he actually <laughs> he breaks that's into laughter. He breaks into laughter. <laughs> oh, he's, oh, he's just an absolute dream. And, and <laughs> like, I, yeah, it's, it's, there's, it's incredible, the feeling. Oh, mate, that, that is awesome. And um, 
if if you haven't seen for any listeners um, tuning in, if you haven't seen the documentary, I think it's four dollars ninety nine to rent it or something like that, and it is unreal. It, it, it's it, it is that's that's exactly what it is. It's real. It goes through your journey. There's some highlights in there about about your um your career, but then also about the way Angry Dad was made and some funny stories in there as well. And it was it was actually an unbelievable documentary, mate. You've done it really really well with the team, um, the casting team as well. Yeah, it was in partnership with Movember, which is all about yep. men's mental health, right? So as a beneficiary yep. of all of that sort of stuff, like it's contribution about giving back. So, yep. um, but yes, they have. Well, oh, look, I would have loved and, you know, my head on TV is not a pleasant sight, but I would have loved for one of those Netflix or stands, um, those streaming yeah. services, even Amazon, whatever, to have picked it up and just showed it more broadly because... Uh, and it's impossible. We've tried to knock on a few doors and, you know, you just get pushed back. You, you look at the shit content that's on telly. Honestly, um, we're about uh, to quit Netflix. It's useless. Well, you know, it really disappoints me because, again, as a society we talk about, and this isn't to put me up on, on a pedestal or up in lights, right? This is about trying to actually share um, uh, something that's been, you know, um, unknown for a long, long time and I've and I finally decided to come out, but... Just, just to, to to spread and send the message to society about all this mental health sort of shit, and yet they'll put on a, some show about grooming a friggin' dog and have Rebel Wilson on it or something. Yeah. For the life of me, I don't get it. I think it just shows that we're not as serious about it as we should be. But you know, exactly. maybe maybe I'm being very very subjective with that sort of thinking. Um, but we've knocked on doors and not interested. In actual fact, I won't name, but one of them actually said, "Listen, can you can you believe this, right?" One of the, the feedback from one of these large streaming companies was, "If people want to see angry, so they 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 were given the trailer and all this, right?" And the feedback was, "No, if people want to see Angry Dad content, they can see it for free on YouTube." So so I, I said so. Did you actually look at the trailer? Did you re- did you actually understand and read what we sent you in terms of what? It- this isn't Angry Dad prank shit. This is a serious story about men's mental health that actually could benefit so many, so many people. And that was the response. If you want to watch, well, no, if people want to watch Angry Dad um, content, they can watch it for free on YouTube. Can you can you believe that? Mate, I, I can't because that's what I said to you before is when I watch your documentary, you brought, brought a few things up for me that I went, well, yeah, I'm still grieving and I, want, I need to deal with it. So, and, and that, that's that's what just amazes me. I just think, like you said before, it's a box ticking exercise is that they come on these streaming services or whatever or Channel 7, 9, 10, whatever. It's like, yep, we've got this mental health, but why aren't they picking this up? I guarantee you if it was a, a murder series or if it was world's hardest prisons, they'd probably look into it, wouldn't they? It's, it's just, oh, it if, I was, if, if, I was cook, if I was cooking in the kitchen or I was actually yeah. building the frigging doghouse out the back. So if it's not about dating, cooking or building – then, you know, no one's interested in it. And it is what it is, uh, like, again, but it, 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 that response back a- around us reaching out saying here it is, to yeah. say that, and I'd love to rip him another arsehole and say who it is, but I just that's just not me. But yeah. that, to me, put it into perspective about where all these, these yeah. you know, these businesses are at. Um, so, you know, we'll just have to do it organically. It's had a bit of a spike in the last few weeks. Cool. Um and I'm happy for that to be the case. And you know what? 
anything I can do. I, I pretty much answer every message that I get through the social platforms, etc. Yeah. Um, sometimes, you know, you feel like you've built a rod for your own back, but again, that's about giving back and trying to do as much as I can for it all. Yep, yep. Well, like I said before, anyone listening, it is for $4.99, you can educate yourself, look at Mark's story because he's got an incredible story and, and then also see some some pretty pretty real stories as well in there, mate. So I just wanted to say congratulations on it all. Like it, it, it was an amazing insight for me. I'm not really a, a massive watcher of documentaries, but that one I watched twice and I showed my sister it as well and everything, mate. So um, well done on that. And I just want to say thanks for coming on, mate. It's a uh, I'm, I've been wrapped to sort of hear your story and, and want to get, get your story more out there because you have so much value to add to people's lives, especially ones who are who might be bottle th- bottling things in. Because as blokes and as an Australian culture, that's what we do. We just bottle things in, don't we? Fantastic. Thanks for having me on, Guy. Appreciate any any friend of Peter Siddle's is a friend of mine. Take care, <laughs> mate. Chin up. Be strong. Um, by all means, give us a buzz whenever you want. When all this shit's done and dusted, let's catch up and have a coffee anyway. Love to keep in touch and let's um, let's try and have as big an impact collectively as we can because life can be good, life can be happy, and let's just help people on that journey and show them how that can be the case. I love sharing Mark's story, one that I didn't know for so long, but I'm so happy that I found out more about it. Such an incredible man, even taking lots of time out of his days to reply to as many messages on the Angry Dad page as possible with people that are struggling. I'll reiterate the story he is sharing now as it's one I believe that needs to keep getting voiced. There's nothing wrong with feeling flat or sad. We're human, it's gonna happen. But please don't suffer in silence like Mark did for so long.